Well, today we arrive at the last message in this series. We've been involved in this for the last three weeks, and today we wrap it up in how to neighbor. And Jesus had a lot to say about it, about loving your neighbor and how to neighbor. And uh, some of you, in fact, many of you, probably most of you, were here when we started this three weeks ago. And in that very first Sunday, uh, we went to Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, we see some of the words that Jesus said about loving our neighbor. And we talked about this really practically because we said, well, how in the world can we really love our neighbors, which would be inclusive of people that we come in contact with any segment of life, without loving the neighbors right in our own neighborhood and how important that that was and how that that mattered. In fact, we looked practically at it and said, well, what if we just started getting to know the names of our neighbors, the people around us? Uh, If you were here that Sunday, you know that I could mention several neighbors that I had growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta when I was in kindergarten in the first grade, and I could just name neighbors still to this day after neighbor, but how that, you know, shamefully, regrettably, that... um, I don't know a lot of my neighbors in a neighborhood I've lived in for 15 years. I know them by sight, wave at them, say hi to them, but I don't know their name and I don't know their need. And that's one of the other things that we talked about. When you get to really know somebody, you know their name, you're going to get to know their needs most likely. And when you know their needs, you can pray for them and you can look for opportunities to serve them and to help them. And we were talking about that. And and then the following week, which is two weeks ago uh, today, uh, my dear friend, Dr. Bill Hackett spoke out of Luke chapter 10 about what Jesus said about who is your neighbor. And Jesus talked in that story about a priest, Levite and Samaritan, and the person who really is the neighbor is the one who reached out to the person in their time of crisis and did a brilliant job uh, talking about that. And then last weekend, we actually went to the Old Testament talking about loving our neighbor and how that this lady by the name of Naomi had this enormous love for her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and and how that played out. And then, you know, Ruth returned that plus some in the way that she loved Naomi so unselfishly. Well, today we come to the final one, and and I'm so looking forward to what we're going to talk about in the next few moments. And one of the things that I want you to understand right here in the very beginning of this talk is that your life is not an accident. It really is not. A lot of times you may think, well, you know, here's what I'm here for. I am here to, you know, just build a career. That must be what the totality of my life is about. I must be here in this world to build a career. But I'm telling you, friends, your life is a lot more than just your career. And you may think, well, you know, if you're younger, well, my, my life is all about school. You're working on a degree or, or you're working on an advanced degree. And it's like, you know what? If my life is not all about education, at least at this stage of my life, it feels like it's all about education. But education is important. Career is important. But that is not the full reality of why you're here. You're not just here to drive the car you drive. or We're not here to live in the home we live in, eat the food we eat, wear the clothes. Our life has so much more significance than just that. You are here, all of you, for a much higher and greater purpose than to just fill up space and to have an address. And we're going to talk about it because what Jesus talked about in his word actually has ramifications for your life and for my life even today. And he's basically saying, we're going to talk about this, and I'll go ahead and give it up early. When Jesus is saying, you know what, my mission in the world, what I'm all about, and my plan to reach the world, my plan to advance my Father's kingdom, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm not in the world anymore. How many of you noticed that? Jesus is not in this world anymore, physically. Now, spiritually, he has sent the Holy Spirit. But how many of you know that physically speaking, you're not going to see Jesus walking around? You're just not. 
You may see Elvis. A lot of people have, they said. You know, you know I read something not too long ago said that there have been a particularly high number of Elvis Presley sightings and of all places around Kalamazoo, Michigan. I don't know why Kalamazoo and, and in Burger King. You know, I, I don't know why Elvis liked Michigan and Burger King so much. But, you know, where people said, well, if somebody comes to you and they say to you, well, I think I've had a sighting of Jesus. And even if they tell you that they think that they saw him in Chick-fil-A, do not believe them. They have not seen Jesus. In fact, if you know somebody that they come to you and they say, I think I've had a Jesus sighting, here's what you need to do. You need to be a friend and you need to take them as soon as possible for a full psychiatric evaluation. Be a friend to them. You'll do that because Jesus is not walking this earth. He's here in his spirit by sending the Holy Spirit, but he's not here. And in this message series, we've been looking at something really important that Jesus said before he left this world. And I want us to see it once more. I want you to look on the screen. This is Jesus right out of Mark chapter 12. And this is what Jesus said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, everybody, would you read with me the next verse? This is verse 31. Everybody read it together. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Read the rest of it. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus repeated this phrase. It's why we've taken four weeks to talk about how to neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? Jesus felt so passionately about this. He didn't just address it here in Mark chapter 12. It is actually found eight different times in the Gospels where Jesus talked about loving your neighbor. He said it again and again, love your neighbor, eight different times. Now, if Jesus says something one time, how many of you know you ought to listen to him if he says it once? If he repeats himself, it's really important and you pay, ought to pay doubly special attention to it. But if Jesus says something eight different times, Times, then Jesus wants, it, wants us to capture it. He wants us to get it. And that's what he's doing in this whole idea of loving, loving your neighbor. It's a really big deal that he wants us to get. And so for three years, while Jesus, you know, was engaged in his ministry, his life was pretty much as normal as normal could be for the Son of God. Pretty much you would have to say normal for the first 30 years. He didn't really, you know, come out with any bold, uh, you know, assertions that he was the Son of God. It was not until he's about 30 years of age. By vocation, he was a carpenter. That's what his father did, uh, his earthly father, Joseph. And he was a carpenter. And, um, you know, then, you know, about the age of 30, he, he starts making these proclamations that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah. And we see his life and his ministry and his miracles. And, and for three years, he taught this. For three years, he modeled this. He'd say it again and again to his followers, you've got to love your neighbor. He said it so often. He talked about it so much. He modeled it so greatly that it came to be known as the great commandment. Now, I want you to just pause with me, do a timeout for just a few moments, and let's briefly reflect on the following events in Jesus' life. I want you to think, first of all, about his life and his ministry. And what did he do? He went about doing good. The Bible says he went about doing good, healing all manner of disease. He knew that he had come on mission from the Father. He said, my work is to do the work that the Father sent me to do and to accomplish his task. I'm here to fulfill my Father's mission. What was his Father's mission for Jesus? The Father's mission for Jesus was that he would save the world, that he would redeem the world. 
And ultimately, he would fulfill that in what I'm going to mention next, and that is in his death. Now, he had been talking about it. I mentioned that to you just before we took communion. He had been talking about it again and again. I must go to Jerusalem, he would say. I'm going to suffer at the hands of wicked people, and they're going to kill me, and they don't want to hear that. But ultimately, that's exactly where he would go. He would go to the cross, and he had to. It was necessary. Before he went, this is what he prayed in a, in, a, in a moment of great consternation in the Garden of Gethsemane. You read about this in the Gospels. It said that he knelt there, and there was, listen to the language, there was as of great sweats of blood. He just, it was like he was sweating blood, and there's a medical uh, definition of how that could potentially happen. And he was in this, this moment of great consternation, and, and he knew that he wanted to fulfill the Father's will, but he knew how difficult it would be to go through what he knew he was about to go through. And so in a moment of tremendous transparency, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I see it. I know it. If there's some way, somehow, that I could sidestep all of the suffering and the pain and the agony and the torture and the crucifixion, if there's some way that I could sidestep that, that'd be good. We see his humanity. But then he said, yet not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, it was necessary. In fact, you and I cannot be saved. We cannot belong to the family of God. We cannot make heaven our eternal home had Jesus not done that. So it was necessary, but when it happened, his followers were dismayed. Well, Jesus had made these other bold claims about the same time that he was saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. Then he started adding another caveat to that when he would say, but after three days, I'm going to rise from the earth. And then he would start saying these crazy things like, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will my body be in the heart of the earth. But then I'm coming back. I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And friends, it actually happened. It actually happened that way, that, that he would be resurrected from the dead. And you talk about this emotional high that his disciples, it's like, you know what? If it was good when Jesus was alive and bad when he was crucified, how great is it going to be when something as miraculous as the resurrection has occurred, it's really about to get good now. It's really, and they're, they're sort of emotionally high about as emotionally high maybe as I was yesterday when I saw with just a few seconds left Jacob Eason, our true freshman quarterback, roll out and throw a 47-yard touchdown pass with 10 seconds to go. And I'm like, Georgia has got this in the bag. It is the will of God that they should win this game. But then you know what happened if you were seeing that game? Tennessee threw a bomb of their own. A Hail Mary, they called it. Caught it, won the game. No time left on the clock. And then I changed my whole emotion. Why is the hand of God still against Georgia? <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. I mean, that really happened, but that was not my feeling. I'm like, ah, oh, how could that be? Well, they're emotionally high. But then Jesus gathers them together, and he's going to make a traumatic announcement. He said, I know, I know, I know you're all amped up about this, guys. I see your RPMs are like pegged out emotionally, and you thought it was good, and now it's really going to be great, but you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be here. I'm, I'm leaving this world. I'm getting out of here. And most of you know, a lot of you do, that two weeks ago to this day, um, I was at my dad's funeral service. My dad passed away. 
And uh, man, you know, we had conversations because his health was poor. He's not old. He's 71 years of age, so it's not like he was elderly by any stretch. But his health had been poor, and we had conversations. Did I know that he would go as quickly as he did? No, I did not. Man, over the last two weeks, I've so, just because I talked to him three, four, five times a week, I, uh, I wanted so many times over the last 14 days to pick up the phone and just call him. Hey, Dad, how are you doing? And he had this way about him, no matter how bad he felt, about 80% of the time when I'd call, Hey, Dad, how are you doing? Hey, Jeffo, he would say, how are you doing? And we'd talk. I'd tell him something that was going on in my life or in the family or in our church or tell him something that was happening with the kids or with our two little grandbabies because he loved to hear about that kind of stuff. And, man, I just I miss that. Could you imagine? Can you imagine what Jesus' disciples felt when he gathered them together after something as spectacular and supernatural as the resurrection? And then he sits them all down and he says, All right, I know you guys are feeling really, really good about this, but I'm just telling you. I'm out of here. I'm going back to the Father. And he had made that promise. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And now he's telling them, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to go back where I came from. I came from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. My resurrection does not mean permanent residency here. Jesus is telling them, friends, I'm about to leave this world. And here's what I'm going to do. And this is so crazy when you think about it. Until you see that it's actually what? Where Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take, you got to catch this now, friends. Jesus says, I'm going to take my plan to reach the world. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm out of here. And I'm going to take my plan to reach the world. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to entrust it to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm turning the family business over to you. It's just you now, and I want you to go out, and I want you to do what I did. And I will send to you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do that. But from this point forward, here's what's going to happen in this world. You are going to be my hands, and you're going to be my feet. And if the kingdom of my Father, if the kingdom of God is going to keep advancing in this world, it's going to happen because you're all in. And if you're not all in, it's not going to happen. And you think about that is ridiculous. Why would Jesus take such an important mission, like reaching the whole world, like redeeming and reclaiming the whole world? And why would he take it and entrust it into the hands of 12 very, you know, interesting individuals, to say the least? Why would he do that? Pragmatically, it would not make any sense at all. But I'm happy to tell you, standing now 2,000 years later, Can you believe that it worked? And it's perpetuated. The kingdom of God has been growing. The kingdom of God has been advancing. In fact, to the point there are way, 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 way more followers of Jesus alive and present on planet Earth today than there was during his time. And every generation, every century since. But then it causes us to pause and realize, well, what about us? I mean, if the plan, if it's like a trickle down and and his plan to redeem, to reclaim, if that's why Jesus went to the cross in the first place, not just for those who are currently living, but for us who are living today and those who will come after us, if that is Jesus' plan and we're now have had that plan given over to us, it it pauses and it begs the question, are we going to keep perpetuating this message? The kingdom has been advancing since that time, entrusted to 12, and the 12 has grown to many, many, till now there are millions and millions of followers, even as I speak, on planet Earth. But will it stop with our generation? 
Are we going to be the one who will fumble the ball, or will we keep it going? And that's something that has got to be asked. And can you imagine when Jesus is laying all this out, and he's saying, hey, I'm not staying here. Yes, I'm resurrected. I see, see it in your eyes. You boys are all glad that I'm resurrected, but I'm not staying. I'm going back to the Father. And when I go, you do what I did. And this whole plan that God has that I came into the world for, I'm taking it. Here it is. It's yours now. And you need to do something with it. And that is actually the Great Commission. The Great Commandment we've been looking at for three weeks. Now look at Matthew 28. This is three verses, 18, 19, and 20, out of Matthew 28, the ending part of that chapter. Look at what what has been called the Great Commission. Not the Great Commandment, but the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Read the next part of it with me, everybody. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So for the last three weeks, we have been looking, and be clear on this, segmented in your mind, for the last three weeks, we have been looking at the great commandment. What is the great commandment? Jesus says it at least eight different times, love your neighbor. In fact, on the forefront of that, he said, this is what he said, love God with the entirety of your being. That's the great commandment. Love God with the entirety of your being. Love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love God with every part of your being. And then, you know, if you were here that first week, what he actually did was he amended Shema, which was the, which was the most important teaching out of the Old Testament. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus added to it. And he said, and Love your neighbors yourself. And then he said, these are the two most important commandments. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So for the last three weeks, we've been looking at the great commandment. Now we're introduced to the great commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says to us, not just to them. Because now, listen, you've got to see this. Now you are a part of the story. Now I am a part of the story because we're engaged in this now. And Jesus has said to every generation of those who have carried his name and have carried his message, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples. And that's where you and I come into play. You say, well, I didn't sign up for that. Tough. You're still in, or you ought to be in if you're a follower of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, and you teach them, you disciple them, you train them, you equip them, and you baptize them in my name. I love the way that Rick Warren has put these together. He's done it so brilliantly. I've never heard it before nor since. But Rick Warren says this, uh, that when you take a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission, it makes for a great church. And that is so true. It's the prayer that I have. It's a dream that I have for us as a church, that you and I would be so seriously devoted to the great commandment that it would be said of every one of us that we love God above everything else. We love God above our career. We love God above our education. We love God even, you know, above our families. It's not to be, you know, in contrast to our families or competitive to our family, but above everything else, our highest passion, our highest level, our highest devotion is to God. We love him with the entirety of our being. We've been talking about this for three weeks, and beyond that, we love our neighbors. We love people. We love God. We love people. 
And then you take the Great Commission and you go because you love God and because you love people and you go and you make disciples. A great commitment, he said, Rick Warren. To the Great Commandment and the Great Commission will make a great church. And that's the kind of church that you and I want to be. Please catch this. This was not just for them. You, have, you are part of the story. You come into play. Now you're in it. It was not just for them. It is also for us. Now, how many of you know that if you've lost your way or you don't know where to go or you don't know what to do next, having directions is a pretty good thing to have? How many of you believe that? To have directions is a pretty good thing to have. Now, how many of you also know this? How many of you who have ever used a GPS, you know that a GPS will lie to you? How many of you know this? A GPS. I mean, her voice sounds so nice, so sweet, so soothing. But that woman will lie to you like you can't believe. She's lied to me many times. Go this way, go that way. And I come to a dead end. And I'm not anywhere near where I wanted to go. It is a good thing to have directions if you want to know where to go and what to do next. I shared with you that uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, before my father passed, I'd actually on Tuesday of that week, he passed away on a Friday, I'd uh, flown up to, uh, to uh, flew into Bloomington, Illinois, uh, to see, you know, my son and daughter-in-law, of course, but primarily uh, my little granddaughters. You know, Landry's going to be one in December, and Kinley was having her third birthday party that weekend. So as, as it turned out, you know, I was so excited about uh, seeing them, and I, I flew in, and some of you have heard me mention this. As I'm flying into Bloomington, now I grew up in Atlanta, and I've lived in Florida a long, long time. But as I'm flying into Bloomington, and, you know, you fly, generally speaking, 30, 31,000 feet or so. But when you're near landing, which is generally about 20 minutes before touchdown, on a clear day, you can see a lot. And, and I knew that I was not flying into a place like Atlanta. And I knew that I was not flying into a place like Tampa or Orlando. Because all I could see out that window was field after field after field after field, occasional house, more fields, more fields, occasional house, and flying, you know, as we're getting ready to touch down in Bloomington. Well, my kids don't even live in Bloomington. They live in Armington. You say, well, where is Armington? I don't know. I've been there. I still can't tell you where it is. I have no clue. And so, uh, you know, on that Friday, so now it's Friday, and it's that morning when I get the call. And... Um, my stepmother says, your dad has passed away. So immediately, you know, I'm trying to change my ticket and book a hotel in the city where my dad lived, do all of that. So it's crazy. And in the midst of this, in the flight that I get, I, I say to my family, my family's there, and, and I say to them, I said, I'm going to have to get up. This is now going to be Saturday morning. I'm going to have to get up at like 3.15 because I need to leave the house no, longer than no later than 4.15 to go to Armington, from Armington to Bloomington to catch a flight, Atlanta, Tampa, and then I'll drive to Valdosta. So all this is going on. So I start talking this up. And honestly, when I start talking this up, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, in a way, asking for volunteers to take me to the airport. But how many of you know, people don't always get excited about taking you to the airport at 4 a.m. They just, they don't. And I'm dropping hints, but nobody's taking. They're, you know, they're looking at their watch and, you know, spitting or doing, I mean, they're just coming up with all kind of things that, you know, uh, they, you know, are not wanting to do. And so... Uh, then Brent speaks up, and Brent has a great plan in his mind. Brent says, I tell you what, Dad. He said, we've got these cars here. Why don't you just get up, and why don't you drive one of the cars to the Bloomington Airport, and we'll go get it later. 
It was at that point I decided that boy was being cut out of the will. <laughs> it was going to be 33 and a third. Audrey, Drew can be happy now. It's 50-50. <laughs> it's like you can just drive a car and we'll go get it later. This crazy, craziest place, craziest place. And uh, in fact, he said, to, you know, give further evidence. He said, sometimes, Nicole, his wife's parents who live there, sometimes if they're flying out of Peoria and they need to leave a car, they'll just leave the key. I'm not making this up. They will leave the car at the airport. That's no big deal. I've done that a hundred times. They will leave the car at the airport with the door unlocked. I've never done that. And with the keys in the ignition. I will never do that. Where I grew up, you do that. You come back. You have no car. You're thumbing it. Sometimes they'll just, so just drive it to the airport. Now, Listen. When they said that, I'm thinking, it's going to be pitch black, and there are places between Armington and Bloomington that even God does not know exist. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be driving around in the middle of the night, and I'm going to be so lost. And then Brent said, no, Dad, I wouldn't let you do that. I'll get up. I'll take you to the airport. His original plan stunk, (laughs) stunk, but his second plan made a lot of sense. So Jesus said, you know what, I'm giving you a plan. And I'm not just telling you go and make disciples. I'm going to actually tell you how to do it. And what I want to do for the next few moments, the remainder of this talk, I want to draw your attention to Jesus' words out of Luke chapter 10. Not going to take us very long, but some very practical steps associated with his plan. Four steps, actually. And I'll give them to you. Step number one, this is all out of Luke 10. Jesus said, you have to get out of the house. You got to get out of the house. You can't just stay where you're at. You can't just get up in the morning, open the garage door, drive out, go do your thing, drive in, and never have contact. You know, go to school, go to work, go do whatever you got to do. Jesus said, you got to get out of the house. You got to go. In the A part of verse 1, this is all Luke 10, the Lord, it says, appointed 72 others, and he sent them out. You see, the first step in loving your neighbors, those in your neighborhood, but beyond our neighborhood, the people that we live near, but the people that we work with or go to school with, the people where we're at, our friends, our family members, to love our neighbors, we simply must be willing, first of all, to go, to step out, to meet our neighbors, to take a risk. And if it's something that you're not comfortable with, join the club. You don't always, when you get ready to go out, when Jesus is sending you out, which he is sending all of us out, you're not necessarily going to feel very adequate. You're not going to feel very confident about it. In fact, I'll just state it this way. Generally, you will not. But you will never feel more fully alive than when you embrace a God-sized challenge and you know that you cannot do it on your own. You know that the risk that God is asking you to take, you can never do on your own. But you never feel more alive and energized than when you feel that you've been given an assignment from God, which in this case is to go. And you go. And when you go, you do it fearlessly because you know that God has promised that he will go with you. Bill Hybels in his book, it's a great book, by the way, Jesus, uh, just walk across the room. He writes this. He says, you, talking about this kind of thing, you hang in there, determined to keep sowing seed. You just keep sowing seed. You just keep going. Sure, at times, he says, you're going to feel like a fool, but you're a special kind of fool. You're the fool who still believes that a tiny green sprout will one day rise up from the dirt. And you just keep going. And Jesus said, I'm not going to just leave you without aim and direction. If you want to know where to go and what to do next, I'm going to tell you you got to get out of the house. Secondly, secondly, what Jesus is saying, do ministry with another person. Do ministry with another person. This is out of the B part of that same verse. Verse 1, all Luke 10, Jesus, it says about him that he sent them out two by two ahead of him. Now, a good question is, why would Jesus send them out two by two? And it's very simple. 
It's very simple why Jesus would send them out two by two because sometimes it's easy to get discouraged or, or give up if you're doing something alone. Almost every adventure that you will ever face in your life will be so significantly easier if you partner with another person, if you partner with another person. Well, and that's true with any area of life. It's true in so many different things. If you just have an adventure and you're like, well, you know, I know I need to do something. This past week, I actually had to fly to Atlanta on Monday, flew back Tuesday afternoon because now there's a challenge with my mom and my sister had been keeping me informed. And while we were there and we were seeing, and mom uh, too, she's not elder. Mom's not even 70 years of age yet. And, and mom is, you know, some diagnosis that she received uh, about a week ago. And so I'm there and my sister and I are talking and my sister says to me, who, uh, you know, she's in pretty good shape, I would say, but she said, it just makes me want to take better care of myself when I see what has happened to dad and now I see what mom's going through. And, and I thought about that, you know, and you may be a person that you said, well, you know, I, I know that I need to take better care of myself. I need to get in shape and I need, but here's the thing. It's just true. The illustration that I'm making is this. There's so many diff- difficult things to do if we try to do them alone. So a person says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get healthier and I'm going to start going to the gym. But how many of you know your body does not always cooperate when your alarm clock goes off? But there's a whole big difference. So if you're not accountable to anybody, you know, hit the snooze and you don't have to go. But if you don't have the discipline yet of where you'll go on your own, then if you know that somebody's going to be working out with you, running with you, doing whatever, uh, if you know that they're going to be waiting at the gym for you at 6 a.m., it's sort of hard to tell them later in the day, I'm sorry you showed up, I decided to sleep in. It's easier to do things together, hold each other accountable. If you're walking through a trial, if you're walking through a battle, if you're walking through a struggle, it's easier to do it with somebody else than to do it all on your own. Some of you have gone through that. Some of you have gone through some challenges in your life that you know that God sent to you a person. It said that Jesus sent them out two by two. Why? Because he knows that in any segment of our lives, often that when we're doing something with somebody else, it is so much easier and it keeps us from getting discouraged or from giving up. And so partner with a person. And just say, you know, if, if God is sending me out, then, you know, I want to do ministry with somebody else. I want to go in his, his name, but I'd like to have somebody go along. And you partner with somebody else. And you dream together and you pray together and you go together. I'd encourage you to partner with our church. Our church is a church. And I can say this so confidently, and I love it about our church. Our church is a church that has a high level of sensitivity toward your unchurched family members and friends. And you can just know, I hope you got it figured out by now. If you've got somebody that you've been working on and you're like, hey, you know, I want to invite them to come to church because I want them to hear about God. And I, I want them to experience, you know, what a church service is like. And I've been inviting them. You can do so confidently. You know we're not going to embarrass them or you. We have a high level of sensitivity. And, and the reason I mention that, next week we've got this series starting, Jesus Revealed, the great reveal. And we're going to be talking about Jesus, not only you, but the people you bring with you for that series. You're, you're going to fall in love with Jesus in a whole new, bright way, a whole new, fresh way. You're going to fall in love when we look at the life of Jesus. You're going to see the things that he's taught. You're going to see what he found. You're going to see what he did. And you, you probably have friends and family members and neighbors and people that you work with. And they, conceptually speaking, they like, I don't really know who Jesus is. Or they've heard things about Jesus that are not consistent with his nature or character. You know, just the opinions of people. 
people. And maybe you'll just say, during this series, I'm going to partner with my church, and I'm going to really amp up and invite people to come with me because I want them to hear who Jesus is right out of the Bible. Let me give you a third step. Jesus did not leave us without direction. He said, I'm going to send you out. I want you to go. You have to get out of the house. Secondly, do ministry with another person. Thirdly, look for the person of peace. Now, why would you say that, Pastor Jeff? Because that's what Luke chapter 10 says. In fact, listen to verses 5 through 7. Again, he's given directions. You go, you go with another person. And then verses 5 through 7, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. But if there is a person of peace there, you stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. Now, listen, what is Jesus actually saying there? It's very, very unusual language. Jesus said, you find the person of peace. What does it mean by the person of peace? And this is what it means. You find those who are most responsive and most receptive, not to the exclusion of others, but primarily. Because you and I know this about ourselves. We only have so much time and we have so much energy and we need to invest the most of our time in those who are going to be most receptive, those who are going to be most responsive. Jesus made a statement one time. He said, do not cast your pearls before swine. And people don't get that. It's like, what? I'd never throw my necklace in a pig stall. That's not what Jesus is saying. Don't keep wasting because some people are ready to listen and other people are not ready to listen. It doesn't mean you give up on them. You cycle back around. You pray for them. And you cycle back around and hopefully you find in the next time a greater level of receptivity. But you invest the most of your time in those who are most responsive and those who are most receptive. In fact, generally speaking, those who are most likely to be receptive are those who you, who you have an affinity with already. People that you already know. In fact, look at the statement up on the screen. This is Gary McIntosh. He says, 75 to 90% of all the people in today's churches are there because of a friend or relative who invited them. And when you start thinking about it, when did you start coming to church? Most of you, 7 to 9 out of 10 of you would say, if it be congruent with our church, which I think it probably would be so, I first started coming to church because a friend invited me or a family member invited me. So thirdly, this plan Look for the person of peace. Look for somebody that is receptive and responsive. Fourthly, lastly, and then we're done. Do not become discouraged if you're rejected. Do not become discouraged if you're rejected. You're going to get rejected. Hey, can I help you with something? Listen, listen. I want to help you. I want to help you. You are going to be rejected in your lifetime in a lot of different ways. I mean, just think about it. How many of you have ever felt rejected? Rejected from a ball team that you really wanted to be on? Rejected from a job? Rejected in a relationship that you really wanted to have? How many of you have ever felt that you were rejected by someone or something? Let, let, let me just see your hand. Just wave like that. Look at, oh my goodness, a church full of losers. <laughs> Look at all these losers. You know what? We've all felt that way. We have all felt rejected. And let me just say this. If you're saying, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to perpetuate the kingdom of God because I fear that if I go, I may get rejected. You know what? If that's how you feel, you'll never go. You know why Jesus could speak to this so confidently? Because Jesus felt rejected. In fact, Isaiah 53, 3, the A part of that verse says that Jesus not only felt rejected, Jesus felt despised. And he could say to us, you know what? I'm going to be with you. Don't be fearful. 
You may get rejected, but you go. In fact, in verse 16, skip it down in Luke chapter 10, he said, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you isn't really rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. And I'm just telling you, I've been there and I'll be there again. When, when I feel gripped by fear and I want to fulfill the great commandment to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love my neighbors, myself, but I also want to fulfill the great commission, which is to go and make disciples. By nature, that makes us a little fearful. It causes us to be a little anxious. I've done this so many times. I can't tell you. I've done it a gazillion times, it feels like. When I feel that, you know what I remind myself? So what if I'm rejected? Think about what other people in the world have gone through and are still going through today when they put their life on their line, on the line when they share their faith. You know, in many parts of the world today, when somebody does what we've been talking about today, you know what they're, what they're putting at risk? What they put at risk is their job. Because there's a lot of countries where if somebody does that, if somebody does that, if they share their faith, they're going to lose their job. Some people are going to be disowned by their own family. Some people are going to be, some people are going to be martyred. Some people are going to lose their life. And when I think about that, and then I start, start thinking about my situation, I realize that I'm not going to operate out of a fear of rejection because if somebody's not as responsive as I hoped that they would be, they're not as receptive as I had hoped that they would be, and they reject me a little bit, so what? The worst case scenario is that they're just not as responsive. And when you consider that, and then you consider what most of our brothers or a lot of our brothers and sisters go through, pretty easy assignment comparatively that we have from God. So don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I love what Greg Laurie says. Look at it on the screen here. It's a great statement. He said, you can be shaken like a leaf and still shake the world. And I believe that to be true. Would you stand? Closing prayer. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, so much. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to love you with all of our heart. God, we, we know we can't be perfect Christians, but we want to be great Christians. We know we're not a perfect church. We'd mess that up, but we can be a great church. We choose today to make a great commitment to the great commandment to love you, to love people. And a commitment to the great commission, which is to go and to make disciples and to love them and to teach them and to equip them and to train them. And we do not go in fear. We go in courage because you have promised that you will go with us. And when we go, one at a time, or we go two by two, we just, from generation to generation, keep perpetuating your Father's kingdom. Because now, the story is about us partnering with you to reach your world, to reclaim your world, to redeem your world. And we go in your name. And everybody say, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. See you next Sunday.